Our scripture lesson today comes from Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, and some other places, but those are the main places will be Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, and I encourage you uh, to keep your Bible open, keep your Bible app open, however you're following along with the scripture, because we will be flipping back and forth uh, between uh, several different references in the book of Daniel. As we try, with God's help and Daniel's help, to answer the question, what's going to happen to this world? Now, I don't do long series of sermons on prophecy. Uh, I, I've never been about that. And, and part of the reason is this. There are just too many different possibilities of interpretation of the same passages of Scripture when it comes to future events. Uh, I was taught a particular way uh, consistently through my education. And so as I read the Bible, I kind of read it through that lens, and it seems to make sense to me. However, there are others uh, who read through a different lens, and they see a different interpretation. That's why in our statement of faith, when it talks about Christ's return, it just says, we believe that Jesus is going to physically return to this earth. Because that's one thing every Bible believer can agree on. At some point, in some way, Jesus is physically going to come back to this earth. How we get there is a difference of opinion. So it's not a test of fellowship. You don't have to agree with me to be a part of this church. Uh, we've had people that I've put in leadership positions who didn't agree with me on, on different prophecy things. That's not an issue. Uh, I'm just going to give you today... Uh, since so much of the book of Daniel is about things to come, I'm going to give you, I'm not even going to call it my belief, I'm going to give you my understanding of how I think things are going to happen in a very general way. There's no way in 30 or 40 minutes that you can do a detailed study, so I'm going to give you a lot of references that are a lot of references in your notes. I encourage you to download them if you haven't yet, if you're watching online so that you can follow along. So this is an overview. Your mileage may vary. This is a very suggestive study, not an exhaustive one. If you're interested in this area, uh, there are two books, uh, among many others, that I would recommend to you. Uh, the most thorough uh, prophecy book that I'm aware of from the perspective that I'll be presenting today is a book called by J. Dwight Pentecost called Things to Come. If you want something a little less detailed than that, Warren Wiersbe's book on the book of Daniel called Be Resolute is also very helpful. Uh, both of those books are like 10 bucks if you have Kindle or uh, Apple books, they're like $10. Um, if you really wanna get into prophecy, uh, I would suggest Things to Come. It is tremendously cross-referenced, and there are, I don't know how many pages in the back of the book with just scripture references that you can go to where in the book he talks about that, if you're interested in that. That's just for your information. Well, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel interprets it for him. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream, and God tells him in chapter 7, verse 17, that both of these dreams 
are the same thing. The, the analogy is different. The picture is different. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about like a, a, a statue. Daniel's dream had more like beasts in it. But God says to him, the, this is the same vision. Two different illustrations of it, but it's the same message. It's the same interpretation. I believe it will give us a handle on what's been happening, what's going to happen in the, the days to come. So we start in Daniel chapter 2, which is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we'll just read starting in verse 32. This is Daniel giving him the interpretation. This is what he saw. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. While you were watching, Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, but not with human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them without, without a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. Now in Daniel chapter 7, we have Daniel's vision. And that starts in verse 3. He says, In my vision there were four beasts. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Verse 4. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground. It stood on two feet like a human being. The mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and before me there was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you glad you listened to this? What in the world? <laughs> this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, we says, sang about that, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never 
be destroyed. Now, <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> what is this series of visions? What I've tried to do in your notes is just kind of put them in a column so that you can see since God told us these are two visions of the same events, we can then find the parallels. And we know where to start because God told Daniel where it starts. In chapter 2, verse 37, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the Babylonian empire, you are the head of gold. So we know where it starts. It starts with the Babylonian empire and Nebuchadnezzar. He is the head of gold, which corresponds to chapter 7, the lion, and that is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. After that come the chest and arms of silver. In chapter 7, verse 5, it's the bear. Now, since we know that it started with Babylon, and we know history, we know what happened next. What happened next was the Medo-Persian Empire. We talked last week when we talked about Daniel and the lion's den, about Darius the Mede, and then about Cyrus who overtook Darius. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. That In chapter 7, verse 5, it talks about the bear having the three ribs. There were three nations, as you study history, that attacked Medo-Persia, tried to conquer them, but were defeated. Now, what's interesting is, as Daniel is interpreting these prophecies, it's all in the future to him. But us, on the other side of a lot of it, can look back and see, oh, this is what he's talking about, because he told us where it starts, and so we know where it goes from there. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, then after that, you've got the belly and thighs of bronze, or the leopard, that was the next empire of the world, which was the Greek Empire. Daniel's vision in chapter 7, he has four wings and four heads. What's the significance of the four? When Alexander the Great, the head of the Greek Empire, was dying, the people wanted to know who he was going to leave his empire to. He had four generals, and they wondered which one he would designate as his successor. And his dying words were, I leave my empire to the strongest. Well, as a result of that, the empire disintegrated into four different sections, each led by one of those generals. So that's the significance of the number four in Daniel's vision. After that, you know the next empire after the Greek empire, because we talk about it at Christmas all the time, the Roman empire. The legs of iron and clay, in chapter 7, it's the beast. That's the Roman Empire. What's the significance of the two legs? Well, you know, maybe. You remember from history? I didn't. I looked it up. Uh, in AD 395, that Theodosius the Great divided the Roman Empire into the Eastern Kingdom and the Western Kingdom, the two legs. So, so far, this is history for us. We look back. We know these visions start with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And so we can see, and God gives us indications, the, the three ribs, the four wings. He gives us indications this is what he's talking about. But then you keep reading. Chapter 2, Daniel gives the continuing revelation. 
And you get to verse 42, and it talks about the toes at the, at the feet of this statue. They were partly iron and partly clay. This kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So he's got these ten toes. In chapter 7, Daniel saw those ten horns coming up out of that last beast. And in Revelation chapter 17, there's a similar vision of a beast with ten horns, and the scripture tells us those ten horns are ten kings. In chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 24, God tells him the same thing. The, the fourth beast is the one who will have the ten horns, and the ten horns will come from this kingdom. There will another horn come out of that one that will lead to the Ancient of Days. Now, from this point on, we're getting into prophecy, I, I believe. Now, there are some interpretations of prophecy who believe that the, the, the ten toes have already happened and you can do all of the research you want to and get as confused as you want to in your study of this. Here's the point. It doesn't matter, ultimately, by the time we know which interpretation is correct, we will be in heaven and it won't matter to us at all. But he says that out of... The, the Roman Empire, the two legs, we have this ten-toed kingdom or the ten horns coming out of this beast. Many Bible scholars believe that this will be a ten-nation coalition that will come out of the old Roman Empire. And that has led to all kinds of speculation. That's all it is, is speculation. But it's it's interesting, and I believe that there's enough biblical basis to it that it's worth mentioning, that there will come a, a kingdom out of the old Roman Empire, some kind of a reformation of the old Roman Empire, those ten toes at the base of the legs, that will be a ten-nation coalition that will rise up in the last days as a world power. Most people, if they believe that it's coming out of the old Roman Empire, believe that it will be some form of what used to be called the common market and is now called the European Economic Community or the European Union. And the people who believe that got really excited back in the late 90s when the 10th nation joined the European Union. Ah, there's the 10th toe, now Jesus is going to come back. Well, except not too long later, two more nations joined, and then there was 13. Nations leave, nations join. There's over 20 nations now in the European economic community. So, you know, time will tell, but there's some indication that there will come out of that coalition a 10-nation confederacy or coalition that will come to power toward the end times. The Bible calls it in the book of Revelation, Babylon. Now, several years ago, uh, the last time I really talked about this in any detail was during the Gulf War. Because during the Gulf War, 
everybody was wondering what in the world was going on. Because Revelation talks about Babylon coming back to power uh, in the end days. And Saddam Hussein, at his height of his power, had rebuilt Nebuchadnezzar's temple. Iran is where geographically Babylon was headquartered. And he claimed to be the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And he called his country at times Babylon. So man, everybody's antenna went up. And you could find book after book after book written by anybody who could get a publisher to publish it. This is it. It's coming. Get ready. Well, it didn't. And, and there were a lot of people then who said, huh, I wonder if there's any truth to any of it at all. I did not take the time to try to find it and bring it to you, but I have somewhere in my library a little booklet. It's one of those books that half of it you know, is in the front, and then you flip it over, and the other half is in the back. The, the front half is 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. That book took the Christian world by storm. Lots of people decided it was time to get right with God as 88 came around. And then 88 went. And those same people said, huh. And they started leaving the church. And so the, the flip side of the book is, you guessed it, it's true, I, I should have brought it, 89 reasons why Jesus is coming in 89. And the first reason was, here's why I was off by a year. Well, he was obviously off by more than a year. Um, what I, I tell you those things to say, we need to be careful not to get so wrapped up in all these things that are going on that we lose sight that Jesus is still sovereign, God is in control, and whatever happens down here on this earth, we know how it's going to end up. Now, from Daniel chapter 7, it appears that from this 10-nation coalition will come one main leader. In Revelation 17, he's called the beast. It's the person that we commonly would know as the Antichrist. And if you read, like, for instance, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says that he will make a peace covenant with Israel for seven years. That's why people that are interested in prophecy always have their eye on Israel, because Israel is the key player in the things to come. So this person, who at the time people don't realize is the Antichrist, will make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. But a lot of people think, because of oil and all of the politics of the Middle East, at some point during that seven years of, of so-called peace, several nations will begin to attack Israel, which will cause the, the Antichrist and his coalition to move into Jerusalem to break the peace treaty and set up his image and say, everybody's got to worship me. Those nations will fight for probably, as best we can understand scripture, maybe that conflict's going to last about three and a half years between the, the Antichrist and his forces and the kings of the south and the kings of the north, that's Daniel chapter 11, as they will fight against him until Jesus comes back with his saints, and as he appears 
all of those nations that are warring against each other will unite to fight against him. And that doesn't last very long. <laughs> and he destroys them and sets up his king. He will literally set his feet on the Mount of Olives. The scripture says he will take the throne in Jerusalem and sit on the throne of David. And that will usher in what we call the millennium, that thousand years of peace. And that's the rock. When you read in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, that's the rock that comes and crushes everything else. That is the ancient of days. It is Christ. And Jesus will set up the final world empire and his kingdom will not pass away. And if you're a child of God, you're in that kingdom. That is an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. Now, let me just parenthetically, when we talk about the second coming, again, this is my opinion. This is how I understand scripture. I believe that we believers will not be here uh, during that seven-year period of time, which, as you read the scriptures, begins to be called the tribulation period. I believe that the Bible teaches that before Christ comes back and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, that first he will come in the air and we believers will rise to meet him in the air in what we commonly call the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's a scripture I use at pretty much every graveside service I hold where it says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth, in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about this, that the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. Jesus said in John 14, I will come again and receive you to myself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that this Antichrist will not be revealed as the Antichrist until the one who hinders him, who is the Holy Spirit, is taken from the earth. It's 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. Now, the Holy Spirit dwells in his people, the church. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will be taken from the earth as the Christians are taken from the earth, just as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, he will leave with us when we are raptured to meet the Lord in the air. And I personally believe from my study of scripture that there are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled before Jesus can come back and receive us to himself. I believe that could happen before we're done here this morning, that at any moment, Christ could come back for his church. The second coming, on the other hand, is when Jesus for the second time, the first time being Christmas, when he for the second time comes back literally to the earth. Revelation 19 describes that. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says that he will come and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will split. Several years ago, Holiday Inn made news when they were going to build a facility on the Mount of Olives. And as always, they sent in their geologists to do a survey, 
and they found out that there is a fault line down the middle of the Mount of Olives, and it was not safe to build on. And of course, Christian said, see, one of these days, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to put one foot on either side of that fault line, and the thing is going to split. That's Zechariah 14. Matthew 24 goes through all of the signs that will happen before the second coming. <laughs> so that's, I told you, an overview. You can do a whole lot of stuff going through the book of Revelation, going into Ezekiel 38 and 39, going into all of these different references and try to put everything together. I tried to find a simple, basic overview of what I just spent 20 minutes trying to talk to you about. I could not find anything that was simple enough to say, look, here's a simple outline. Because uh, everybody's going to say, well, and then this is going to happen, and then this might happen. But we do know that the visions start with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And so we can know that then was the Medo-Persian Empire, and then was the Greek Empire, and then was the Roman Empire. And it appears that from those toes at the end of the two legs of the Roman Empire will come at some point a ten-nation coalition. Again, don't get too excited. Uh, Keep your eyes focused on Christ. But here's my point. No matter how this ends up, and again, by the time we know for sure which interpretation is correct, it won't matter because we'll be with Jesus. But how should we live in the meantime? That should be every emphasis of prophecy. How should we live in the meantime? First of all, just as an overview, and it's not in your notes, you might want to stick it over to the side. We need to focus on the Savior and not the signs. You know, you hear people talk about the signs of his coming. Well, we need to focus more on the Savior than we do on the signs. We need to focus and keep our focus on Christ. How should we live in these days? First Peter and Second Peter were written by Peter to a group of Christians living toward the end of the first century who were going through intense tribulation. He told them, you need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. And he talked to them about how to live. And one of the things he says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. In other words, we need to live thoughtfully. Some of us have lived through several events where preachers were saying, Christ is coming, Christ is coming, get ready, get ready. Uh, I remember in the 70s, I don't remember which presidential election, but I remember in the 70s, hearing a well-respected preacher say, this may be the last election our country ever has. Um, if you study the uh, archives of old books on prophecy, you'll find people who said that Hitler was the Antichrist or Mussolini was the Antichrist. You know, there, you, there's just been all kinds. It's kind of like the bad guy at the moment. Let's figure out how he's the Antichrist. And then what happens is we get embarrassed 
and opportunities that could be opportunities to encourage people to get their lives in order become just opportunities for embarrassment. I, I found this quote uh, shortly after the Gulf War. The, uh, he said this, Let me say first, to be very wary of anyone who predicts God's next move or claims to have a model of the end times. The purpose of prophecy is to show us that God is in control so that we are not afraid. We can see and have confidence in God. And then he says, I was in the army during the Gulf War, and I listened to all the false predictions and all the Bible experts mapping out the events to come next. We all know how it ended. All the predictions failed. Those who believed the so-called prophets were left wondering if the Bible is true. It wasn't the Bible that failed. It was the misrepresentation of the Bible that failed. What should have been an opportunity for Christians ended in embarrassment for many Christians. So that's why I don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Because we don't know. Because it's yet to come. And by the time we know, we'll be with the Lord and it'll be okay. But in the meantime, until Christ returns, and by the way, none of us knows how much time each of us has uh, individually, and we don't know when the rapture will take place, although again, I believe it could happen before we finish today. But we need to live thoughtfully. And part of being thoughtful is to remember what you believe. Jesus says something very significant in Luke 21. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. What a word for us. When you hear of commotions, that's a pretty good word to describe what's going on. When you hear of wars and commotions, don't be terrified. I did not choose the songs we sang today based on this message. But it's interesting that the songs we sang today were about Christ's kingdom, were about him reigning forever, were about us crowning him Lord of all. That's how it's all going to end up. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we need to remember what we believe, that if God is in control, we can be confident. And I don't have all the answers. I don't have the whys. I don't know why... You know, the election went the way it went. Maybe you think it was the right way. Maybe you think it was the wrong way. But here's what I believe. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God is in control. I don't believe God is up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh man, how am I going to fix that mess down there? I don't believe, I believe he is in control. I believe that he has a plan. I know that he doesn't share his plan <laughs> with me. If he shares it with you, let, let the rest of us in on it, please. But, you know, my trust is in God. And he is in control. And he's going to have the last word. And it's going to be good. And if you have your focus on the circumstances of life, you're going to be in trouble. Because there's a whole lot of shaking that's going on. Because the word says in the last days, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But if we can be thoughtful 
and remember what we believe, and more important, remember in whom we believe, we'll be able to stay steady. Secondly, we ought to live prayerfully. That, that verse just strikes me. 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled. The rest of that verse is, so that you can pray. Whoa! Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Have you ever had such mental confusion and emotional instability that you couldn't even pray? I'm sure we've all had times like that when, when things just came at us all at once and it was like, I've got to get somebody to pray for me because I can't even pray right now. And sometimes we spend so much time on the media and we so, spend so much time, the word I used a couple of weeks ago, doom scrolling, scrolling through social media, reading all the dire warnings and terrors and everything that's wrong in the world, that we can't pray because our brain is so centered on the stuff of our world that our mind is confused, our peace is gone, and it's hard to pray. So Peter says, stay clear-minded and stay self-controlled so that you can pray. We're going to talk about prayer more detailed next week, as far as I know now, because Daniel, throughout the book of Daniel, teaches us some important lessons about prayer. But we, we need to, the Bible says, pray for those in authority over us. I, and I, I was thinking this morning, you know, how do we pray? And, and, and I, I thought, you know, there have been times throughout the history of the world when God has inserted people into a leader's inner circle that were strong believers in God and received so much favor that they were able to influence that leader toward good. I think that's a good way to pray. I mean, that's we're studying Daniel. That's certainly who he was. He was a believer, but God showed him so much favor that first Nebuchadnezzar, and then Belteshazzar, and then Darius, and then Cyrus, all had him in their inner circle. And he was able to influence them because it was King Cyrus, a heathen king, that God used to put the decree out to let the Jews go back to their homeland. And I wonder how much influence Daniel had over that decision. So I, I think that's a good way to pray. God slips some secret agents, you know, into the, the, the advice givers of, of our governors and our senators and our representatives and our president and, and some people that will represent you and will be an influence for you on their lives. You know our leaders get so much pressure from so many different places. Maybe they need to get some pressure from believers. And what I mean by that is have some believers in their inner circle who can whisper in their ear, you know, pray, think about this, and, and just ask God to, to let righteousness and peace and joy come in our world. The third way to live is to be prepared for eternity. 
How do you prepare for eternity? 2 Peter chapter 3. We ought to live holy and godly lives. What he basically is saying, live your life to please God in every area. Live with eternity's values. We have learned, haven't we, over the last almost year now, what's important and what isn't important. And a lot of the things we thought we couldn't do without, we've had to do without. And we've learned that what's important are the people that we love. What's important is our faith. What's important is the family of believers. We need to live with eternity's values as our priorities. Maybe we need to make some relationships right. Maybe we need just to take a long, hard look at how we're spending our time and make sure that we're living with eternity's values and be faithful to our calling. In Matthew 24, as Jesus is talking about the second coming, he said the person will be blessed who is doing what his master left him to do. So we need to be faithful to do what God called us to do, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to live our lives in honor to him. And, and that can take on different meaning. You know, sometimes, oh, the Lord is coming back, and so I'm going to quit my job, and, and I'm going to go around preaching. Well, you know, if the Lord's telling you to do that, okay. But uh, don't blame him if you end up with no money. Uh, but you know, I, there's a couple of quotes that I found in my study that, that really hit me. St. Francis, y'all remember St. Francis of Assisi. He was working in his garden. And somebody asked him, what would you do if you knew the Lord was going to come back tomorrow? And he said, first, I'd finish tilling my garden. Somebody asked John Wesley, the founder of the, the Methodist Church, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back today? He said, I'd do what I already had planned to do. I, I like that. You know, Live your life in such a way. <laughs> you know what it's like when company's coming? And all of a sudden, oh man, we got to do all kinds of stuff. Well, well, live your life as though company's coming. You know, live your life as though Jesus is coming back today. I've told you before about a, a wealthy landowner who went to Europe for the summer or whatever, and and left a gardener in charge of his estate. And the gardener kept the place immaculate. And somebody came by and said, why are you doing this? You know, he's going to be gone for who knows how long. Why are you so meticulous about keeping all of this? You, you, you're keeping this in the shape as though you expect him to come back tomorrow. And the guy said, no. I expect him to come back today. And that's how we need to live our lives, as though we expect Christ to come back today. Be faithful to what he's put you here to do, and be prepared to give an answer. 1 Peter 3.15, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. Now, there's not a whole lot of social interaction happening right now, but there will be times when somebody's going to say, what do you think's going on in this world? And, and how do you think all this is going to end up? And you'll have an opportunity. Now, don't go through all the, the different beasts and the heads and the horns. Just tell them, here's how it's going to end up. Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to set everything straight. And he's going to be the ultimate ruler. 
Be prepared to give an answer with gentleness and respect. And the answer is this, God is in control of history. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he sets up kings and tears them down. God is in control of history. Again, I don't have the answers why. I don't understand it all. I don't have to understand it. The only decision that I have to make about all this is, do I trust God? And if I trust God, then I keep my eyes on him and let happen down here what's going to happen down here. Because God is in ultimate control of history and Christ is the ultimate ruler. He is that rock kingdom that's going to come and crush every other kingdom. And his kingdom will not pass away. It is an everlasting kingdom. And I'm part of it. And if you're his child, you're part of it too. And that's what's going to happen to this world. Ultimately, Christ is going to come back and set up his kingdom. And we should burst into the hallelujah chorus. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Father, for that assurance. Getting there may be painful at times, may be traumatic at times, but we know that it's going to be worth it. Because you, one of these days, first, I believe one of these days, you're going to come back and we're going to meet you in the air and we will be forever with you. And then one of these days, you're going to come back to this earth and you're literally going to set up your everlasting kingdom. And we're so thankful to know that you are the ultimate ruler. We don't have to be shaken or terrified by the things that are happening in this world. You are in control of history. You proved it to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel through these visions. And as we look back, we see how they all fall into place. And so because of that, we can certainly trust you for the future. And whatever the horns are and whatever the toes are and whatever any of that stuff ends up being, Here's what we know for sure. You are the rock of ages. You are the everlasting Lord. You are the creator and your kingdom will never pass away. And we're so thankful for that assurance. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and give you his peace now and evermore. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for tuning in. You're dismissed.